You know, um, uh, Harry Walls, he began, and he's passed the baton on to me, although I don't really like that picture because usually you have one of your fastest guys start and then your fastest guy end the thing, and who normally runs second? I know my place, I'm humble, but uh, my desire is to be able to serve you well. And like I've always said, God used Balaam's donkey, so we all have a shot at this thing. My desire is to stimulate your thinking. In a sense, maybe even uh, irritate your thinking a bit about this whole issue of, of commitment to God. Uh, Harry shared with us the fact that uh, we have access. And uh, we have access to one who understands. And the great news is that he, he's always there. And so, you know, when you're grateful, he's absolutely right. You're motivated to want to have a commitment to God. We know He's there. I mean, you just look around and, and, and we know that God is there. When God first introduced Himself to us in Genesis 1-1, He said, you know, Hello, I'm the one who created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, if you look around, God says, Look around and you know that I am. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, One of the greatest proofs of the existence of God is indeed His creation. Because how can you be committed to someone if you're not really absolutely sure that, he, that He's there? And yet you look at the heavens and the earth, stars and the moon, and you wonder, well, who created all of that? And of course, Paul says that you look at that and you get a whole clear view of the fact that the God who is is the one who is there for you, the one you have access to. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Picture you and I are on an airplane. We're flying. Throw the ocean, we, we, we lose uh, uh, power, we go down, find this little island. We land on the island. No evidence at all that there's anybody living on the island. So we walk down the beach and uh, a lot of jungle, and so I send you in, being the man that I am, I say, why don't you check it out? So you go ahead and you look all around, take a couple hours, you come back and you say, uninhabited, nobody's on the island. I go, great, I'll take leadership back. So I begin to lead, we walk around, we go around the bend, and then we all of a sudden notice, right there in the cove, where the water's splashing up, we see it. The piano. And you say, where did that come from? And I say, well, after millions and millions and millions of years, you know, the oil from the ground and then the sun melted this stuff and then an elephant broke his teeth and, you know, and then what happened, this thing kind of evolved, see there? And, of course, you look at me and you say, I'm taking leadership back. And you explain to me, since there's such design, somebody had to make that. You look at the design, you can see that it indeed came from one who, who was intelligent, one of wisdom, one who designed a thing, one of great skill. Well, just look at the human body. Here's our eyeball. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, whacks us in the eye, goes through the cornea, through this lens thing that kind of goes, mm -hmm, and then it goes this gobbledygook stuff, hits this black wall called the retina, it's made up of, of rods and cones, so you can see black and white as well as color. Then it kind of dribbles down this optic nerve, and you see. What a coincidence. <laughs> when you think about the ears. Here, what am I doing? I'm pushing air. So I, some say it's hot air, but I'm pushing air. So I'm pushing air, and it comes through and goes through this, this big old kind of tunnel and down this little canal, and it, and it hits this tympanic membrane, this little wall that vibrates. That thing's hooked up to three little bones. And when the air is pushed and vibrates the uh, tympanic membrane, the three little bones vibrate. Well, they're hooked up to the thing that looks like a seashell called a cochlea. And that's filled up with goop with little hairs on the inside. 
So when I push air and I vibrate your tympanic membrane and the three little bones vibrate and that vibrates the goop in the cochlea which wiggles the hairs and you hear, you go, what a coincidence. See, God designed it all so that we would have this constant reminder, God is, God is. Think of the solar system, the sun, 93 million miles away. And this big star, one of millions and billions of them, I guess, this thing is flying through the galaxies. Now, going around the sun, there's a little thing called the Earth. And it goes around, makes it around once. Well, once every, what, 365-so days. This thing's going around the sun. Now, at the same time it's going around the sun, the Earth is, is, is rotating once every 24 hours. <laughs> and then going around this rotating, circling Earth, you've got a thing called a moon. And that thing is going around every day. And then that thing rotates and you never see the backside of the moon. Talk about synchronizing something. Talk about timing something. God is. That's really not the problem. But the question we come up with, okay, God is, what does God want? He says in Genesis 1, Hi, I created everything. Look at everything. You know I'm here. So your response is, God, what do you want? You know, in Genesis 1-1, he doesn't tell us. He just tells us he is and how we know he is. It's not really until you get to Psalm 19 when he says, The heavens and the earth declare thy what? Come on, it's not a hard question. Declare thy glory. So in other words, God says everything exists to declare my glory. Now, it's not just the heavens and the earth. Because Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the last two verses of the chapter, he says, Don't you know you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what do you want, God? Glorify God with your body and your spirit. Belongs to Him. So God is there. He's created everything so we know He's there. What does God want? He wants us to glorify Him. He wants everything He's created to glorify Him. Great. How do you do that? How do you do that? Because if we can get a handle and make sense of this whole thing of commitment to God, to glorify God, then we've got something to walk away with. You know, I have learned in my years of ministry, I'm getting less and less interested in what you say you believe. Because you can believe all kinds of things, but I'm realizing that what you believe does not necessarily affect what you do. See, you do what makes sense to you. If something makes sense to you, you do it. If it doesn't make sense, I don't care if you believe it. If it doesn't make sense, you're not going to do it. So forget all the stuff you believe does it make sense to you? Because if it makes sense, if it can make sense to you, then you're going to do something about it. Now he says here that God created everything, not for us just to know he's there, but to glorify himself, and that includes us. Matter of fact, remember when it says in, in, in Genesis 1.27, God created man, both male and female, male man and female man, God created mankind to, to, in his image. What does it mean in his image? as a conduit to manifest this thing called glory. Now, if we can get a handle on what glory is, I always was taught that glory is the light of God, the bright, shining glory of God, like He's a cosmic GE bulb in the universe. You know, what does it mean, the glory of God? I'm so glad that Moses asked the question. Remember, things are going kind of tough in the book of Exodus, around chapter 33, Remember Moses, uh, Israel, they're having a hard time and, and God's a little ticked at them and Moses is ticked at them and he's ticked and God's ticked. Everybody's upset there. And then in chapter 33, Moses says, God, show me your glory. I'm so glad somebody finally got around to ask him. 
God, show me your glory. Well, God first gives a little warning. He says, well, I, I can't let you see my face. Because if you see my face, then you're going to be post-toasty. All right? You're going to be gone. You're going to be blown up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in the cliff of the rock. And then I'm going to pass by. And then you'll see my afterglow. All right? You'll see my after parts. But what's interesting to me is this. He says, I will pass my glory by you. Great. Here it comes. And then he says this. You will see my compassion, my goodness, my name. Hello. I didn't ask for that. I asked for your glory. Now, what do you have in your goodness and your compassion, your name? Now, remember the name. That was what makes you uniquely you. Who you are. Your attributes. Your personality. That's, that's basically your, your... Whoa. Apparently, God did answer the question. When Moses said, show me your glory... And God has His goodness and His compassion and His name passed by. And God says, that is my glory. Now we understand what glory is. Glory basically is who God uniquely is. His personality, His attributes, whatever uniquely makes God God, that's His glory. Now when He says in Psalm 19 that that the heavens and the earth declare His glory, I'm getting a little picture here. Because one thing, I look at the universe and I say, okay God, you're big. Sometimes people say, well, do you believe in UFOs? I mean, you look at the galaxies. How could we be the only ones? Because there's so many earths. I mean, so many planets and so many suns. Well, it may be there's others. I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say so other than angelic beings. Could it be maybe that, that Paul says in Romans 1 that if God wanted to show us something about Him like His eternal attributes, that He is eternal, how could God show that? How about making something that would give us a headache when we start thinking about how big it is? You see, God created everything. It's the heavens and the earth. If you look at the Grand Canyon, look at the trees, you see the beauty of God. You see that God's intelligent, that God is skillful, that God loves beauty, that God loves, loves enjoyment. He didn't create everything tasting like liverwurst, right? He created a spectrum of colors. So we learn a lot about what God uniquely is like by looking at general revelation. But we don't know anything personal about Him by looking at general revelation. So why did God create this carcass, those carcasses? Why did God create man in His what? In His image. So that God could uniquely manifest His glory, manifest what uniquely He is like through us. So we can see the general aspects of God through general creation but through our lives, as I glorify God, partake of His glory and manifest it, people can get a clear look and remove the confusion of what the Creator is really like, not just in general, but specifically. Now, if that's the greatest theme in the universe, if that's why I was created, if that's what it's all about, is that I can use this body to show the world, people around me, what God is like, then where do I start? It starts right here with commitment to God. I have a problem. I have a fallen nature. I don't show a clear picture of what God is like. Like Paul says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I, I kind of blow it. People, if they get a good look at God through me, God's pretty fuzzy. You know, if only we could have the perfect image of the invisible God in visible form. If only we could have the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. If only we had Colossians 1.15 and Colossians 2.9. In other words, who is Jesus, God the Son? 
He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. If I could just be like Jesus, I could get a handle on this thing that I'm all about, manifesting God's glory. Well, what does Jesus command? As you go into this world in Matthew 28, make what? Another easy question. I want you successful. Make disciples. But you see, before you can make a disciple, you have to first be what? Be one. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? He says, A disciple will be as his master. The word mathetes, a learner, is one who's being conformed, one who is striving to be like his master, like his teacher. So the more I become like Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus, the more I will be completing what I was created to do to give God glory. Because Jesus gave him pure glory, manifested the pure attributes of the Creator. That's the goal of life. That's the greatest fulfillment. That's what I was created to do. And that's where I'm going to find my happiness and fulfillment. Okay, then I'm going to be, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? If you think of somebody committed to God, you think of Jesus. That's number one. The word disciple is interesting. It's used 265 times in the New Testament. But what's interesting about the 265 times, you only find it in the Gospels and the book of Acts. That's it. And of those 265 times the word disciple is used, Jesus does not just throw it around and use it very much. Matter of fact, he only uses the phrase, my disciples, makes reference to my disciples, eight times. Seven of those eight times are conditional. What I mean is he says, if you want to be my disciple, you will do something. If you don't do something, he says, you're not becoming one of my disciples. The eighth one, because you're all wondering, what about the eighth one? Well, that's simply when he says, I'm going to have dinner with my disciples. But the other seven, again and again, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you will do something. Now, if you look at this great study, do a paper, guarantee an A, unless you really mess it up. But basically, the seven statements there are five marks of becoming a disciple from the words of Jesus, as Jesus prescribes. And let's go with him. Instead of all the books, what does Jesus say? Kind of like, you know, the gospel according to Jesus type of deal here. <laughs> you know, what does Jesus say here? Well, what I want to do is I want you to open your Bibles because I want to show you just the first one. And the whole thing begins. And it's in Luke chapter 14. And it's one of those sections, one of those things Jesus says that most of us wish he didn't say. You know, Jesus, he says things and then he leaves it with us to try to explain them to people. And we get in trouble. It's really a drag, right? Not if we understand what he meant by what he said. Luke chapter 14. Here's the first of the seven. Let's start with verse, uh, with verse 25 and verse 26. Luke 14. Now great multitudes were going along with him. And, and he turned and he said to them, If, there it is, the condition, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, my, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my what does he say? Come on, easy question. My disciple. Thank you, Chris. Uh, he says, unless you hate your mother and your father, your brothers and sisters, you say, well, the brothers and sisters, that, that's not hard. But, but mom and dad thing. And children, that, that's a hard one. My, and in my own life, he says, unless you hate, you can't be my disciple. Does that bother anybody else other than me? 
What's this hating stuff? It's one of those verses. Well, let's uh, go ahead and move on to the next chapter. No, no, let's stop here. Jesus really said it. I looked at the original. It's really there. And the word is hate. As a word. Let's go back to the most ancient confession of faith to the God who is there. It's called the great Shema to the Jew. It means Shema is to hear. And it's, it's Deuteronomy 6. When he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. It's kind of like, got your attention? Now, here's the first most ancient confession of response to God who is there. And he says, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Now, we're going to talk about being committed to God. I mean, we're now motivated, as Harry shared with us, out of gratitude. Okay, I'm, I'm golly, I want to do this thing. All right, well, what's the next step? Well, the next step is all you got to do now is love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and might. Great. What are we going to do tomorrow? What, are, what does that mean? All your heart, soul, mind. Later on, uh, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus this question. Basically, it's in Matthew 22. He says, Jesus, what's the most important thing that God ever said? Not about you, but I'm always looking for the bottom line of stuff. And here this lawyer, I'm grateful, I'm glad for this guy. I never thought I'd be glad for a lawyer, <laughs> but I am for this guy. Well, I'm for others to get me out of trouble. But anyway, he basically comes to Jesus and he says, what's the most important thing God ever said? Well, the phrase is, what's the greatest commandment? That's what he's saying. What's the most important thing God ever said? What is Jesus saying when he answers that? He quotes the most ancient confession back in Deuteronomy 6. When he says, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, and he says, all your mind. So wait a second. Jesus, you know, he made a mistake there. It's, you know, Moses said all your might. And Jesus, you know, blows it here. Well, if he blows it there, he blows it big time in Mark 12. Because there, uh, apparently, I believe at another time, or uh, maybe at the same time, lawyer says, what's the most important thing God ever said? Jesus says, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul. And then he says, and your mind and your, your, your strength. So Jesus is really confused. Shame he can't read Deuteronomy 6 like, like we can. Unless when Jesus, when uh, Moses says, all your heart, soul, and your might, Jesus explains all your might as your mind and your strength. I'll show you what I mean. What does it mean to love the Lord thy God of all your heart, for example? Now, the heart's an interesting thing. You know, we know it's an organ. And, you know, in, in our society, we talk about, you know, when you're making your move, guys, you know, Sweetheart, you make my heart just pound. You know, I love you with all my heart. Because in our culture, the heart's kind of how you feel. Kind of an emotion deal, right? But, but not in this con not to the Jew. When they talked about feelings, they talked about the gut, the bowels. But that doesn't go over real well when you say, Sweetheart, I love you with the bottom of my bowels. You know, it kind of goes over like a pregnant pole vaulter, guys. Don't even try that, all right? But you got to understand, we even talk about a, a, a gut feeling of something, a gut feeling, uh, emotion. But you see, heart had nothing to do with your feelings. For the Jew, it was the center of volition, the center of will. In other words, maybe our word, what is your deep intention? That is, what you've made up your mind, what is your desire to do, that's your heart. That's my intention. Now, that's the heart. What is soul? Well, in this context, the soul is, again, what is uniquely you, your, your personality, your, your self-consciousness. What makes me different from you? It's the thing that's going to be with Jesus Christ when this carcass dies, all right? It, it is me. It's my soul. It's, it's uniquely my personality. 
Love the Lord thy God of all your heart and your soul. And then he says, with all your might. Now Jesus explains might as being your mind and your strength. That speaks of all your creative energy. Any imagination, anything you can come up with and the strength it takes to implement that, that's your might. So what he's saying here is, all right, commitment to God is I, I love the Lord thy God with all my heart. That is, my deep intention is love you, God. Uh, my soul, my personality, anything I have to offer, any gifts, any abilities, I want to love you with it. And might, oh God, any creative energy, any thoughts, I want it all to go to show you and to please you and to show my love for you. The key to this whole thing is one three-letter word. Three-letter word. Used three times in all of those confessions. What's the word? Starts with an A. Ends with an L. L in the middle. Memory says all your heart, all your soul, all your might. The word all is pretty exclusive, isn't it? If I go to my wife Holly and say, Honey, I give you all my love. That means, that's pretty exclusive. It's her and her alone. If I say, Honey, I give you the best of my love. Not enough for my honey. She says, I'll kill you. Just give me the best. I want the worst. I want it all. And so it's an exclusive thing when he says, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now I think we can get some handles on what Jesus is talking about. Go back to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying here that we are to hate our mothers and fathers? He can't be saying that because of what he says back there in, in, in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, verses 3 and 4, the, the Pharisees are giving him a hard time about traditions. His disciples are not keeping up with the traditions. And Jesus kind of nails them like, like he did, uh, does, did. And uh, basically he says, you know, you, you, instead of, like the Bible says, honoring your mother and father, you say, Mom, Dad, you know, the stuff, I, the money I was going to give to help you, I've already given to God. So I'm sorry. He says, your traditions dishonor the word of God. But the point is, there in Matthew 15, Jesus affirms, that if you do not honor your mother and father, you should be put to death. Now, this is one of the great favorite verses of us who are parents. Hear that, Kent? Kent's my son. By the way, this is my son, Kent, my baby, my cute little 6'2 baby, uh, normally red, complex. his good buddy, Neil. Uh, Kent is thinking about coming to Masters next year. Neil needs to, but Pepperdine's after them. What is your opinion on that? Okay, thank you. Just, you know, we want to seek many counselors, Kent, you know, on, on this, this deal here. But I, I want Kent to understand, if you don't honor your parents, you ought to be put to death. Now, when Jesus says... Sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. I apologize. I'm just a little crazy there for a moment. But when Jesus says that you ought to be wiped out if you don't honor mother and father, would he turn around and the next day say, now hate your mother and father? No, no, no. So it can't mean that we're to hate, emotionally hate our mom and dad. A little clue on this hate stuff, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because he uses this word again in Matthew 6 verse 24, talking about money. Most of you remember this one, but remember when Jesus made the statement? I know it's Jesus because it's in red, so it had to be Jesus. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So he says, you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one, love the other. If you love one, by definition, in this context, if you love one, you hate the other. See, well, I don't have this emotional thing against money. Matter of fact, I kind of like money. It's kind of a... God does a lot of wonderful things with money. It's not a bad thing. I mean, the school's here because people have invested money. It's not because people hate money, have this emotional, you know, I abhor money, get rid of it. Well, great, get rid of it this way. I, I don't hate it, you know. But he says here that I can't have two masters. Now, when I was working on this thing, it all of a sudden made sense to me because I slipped on Matthew chapter 10. Now, let me show you. Let's do a little Bible study together, all right? Put one finger in uh, Matthew 10. One finger in Matthew 10. And then go back to Luke 14. Now, in verse 26, after he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother, the next thing he says is verse 27. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That was the second cannot be my disciple. If you don't carry my cross, you cannot be my disciple. They say, well, what's the point, Daryl? Well, go now to Matthew 10, because look at Look at verse 38. Here it says, And he who does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, you see the parallel? In other words, here in verse 37, he says, If you don't take up my, your cross, you're not worthy of me. But in, in Luke 14, he says, If you don't take up my cross, you cannot be my disciple. He's talking about taking up the cross. Taking up the cross. Well, he said that in Luke right after he was talking about this hating mom and dad deal. What does he say just before here in Matthew 10? Before he says take up the cross, look at verse 37. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter, there they are. There's the children. There's the mom. There's the dad. Notice, apparently, they drop brothers and sisters, so I guess biblically you can still hate them, but he says here, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There Jesus explains what he means, hate. To the Jew, hate, this is not an emotional thing. I know this is hard for you to understand, because I use in English the word hate, and you think of emotions, you think of bitterness, resentment, anger. But that's not what the word means in this context. It has nothing to do with your feelings. It has nothing to do with emotions. It has everything to do with your heart, your soul, and your might. It has everything to do with choice. The point here is choice. Make up your mind and make a choice. And the choice has to be so clear, so absolute, it's like night and day. Love and hate. That's the point that he's making here. The problem we have is that we don't get around to making the choice. Romans chapter 12. What are the first two verses? It says, now I'm begging you. I, I'm begging you to, 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 to give your body as a sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Notice when the word there, present your bodies. And you know this. It's an heiress. It's a once and for all. Make up your mind and do the thing. It's not, well, I'll kind of osmos and I'll just kind of figure it out as I go. No, he says, point in time, make a decision. One of my favorite words in the New Testament, you find in the book of James. Uh, James is my kind of guy. This kind of cuts it straight to the bottom line real fast. 
You find it in James chapter 1. You find it, he's the only one to use it the second time in James 4. Maybe he liked it too. It's the word double-minded. Now, now the, the English double-minded doesn't really impress any of you. I can tell your faces look like you're not real impressed. But the Greek word is dipsukoi. I just like that word, dipsukoi. It sounds like dipstick to me. Uh, dipsukoi, dip die, to double suke, soul, double sold. Basically, you're acting schizophrenic. Remember your soul? Your soul is uniquely who you are. Now, don't be two different people. Don't be double-souled. Don't be dipsukoid. Don't be double-minded. Don't be schizophrenic. Who are you? Make up your mind once and for all who you love first. It's got to be as clear and as straightforward as black and white as love and hate. Jesus says you cannot be my disciple. Unless you once and for all make up your mind, you will love me more than your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your own children, your own life. Well, I want to bid you welcome to the first annual Master's College Bible Conference and Preaching Competition. And I'm not so sure I like the illustration this morning that uh, Harry and Daryl proposed about a relay team and the baton passing because I ran relays, quarter-mile relays in college, and we always hit our worst runner third, not second. That's actually where we held them. I'm not entirely sure why I'm here. I've got my brothers in Christ in the front row with their critique sheets out. I want to tell you a true story. Marcel Sternberger used to leave the Woodside Station in Long Island in New York every day at 9.04 on his way as a photographer into New York City, Manhattan Island, where he went to work at his office. Today, he has a thought to visit his sick friend up in Brooklyn, a friend he hadn't thought about for some time, who had, he'd heard recently taken a turn for the worse and was in the hospital, so he went and visited his friend and then hurried quickly now near the noon hour to catch a subway that he'd never been on before, frankly, working his way back through the island of Manhattan to his job downtown as a photographer. As he stepped onto the car that he had chosen, he realized uh, that there were no seats, pretty standard in a New York subway, and so he grabbed a handhold just above uh, his head and stood there waiting for the doors to close and the car to depart. When suddenly, the woman sitting immediately under his arm leaped up and ran off. I don't know whether she missed her stop, thought it was someplace else, suddenly realized where she was. But all of a sudden, for Marcel Sternberger, here was an empty seat on the full New York subway. Like any smart New Yorker, he sat down. Sitting next to him as he began to go on into New York City through the many stops, he realized the man next to him was reading a newspaper, a Hungarian newspaper. Intriguingly, Marcel Sternberger spoke Hungarian himself, and so as he began to peer over the man's shoulder and read along with him, a conversation was struck up. Why are you in New York? asked Marcel to this man who was obviously from Hungary. And he told him this story. He said, I'm in New York City looking for my wife. You see, when I was in Hungary during World War II, the Russians came and took me captive, and pressed me into service, and helped force me to walk with them through their many battles, carrying their food and their ammunition and burying their dead. 
At the end of the war, I came back to our little town of Dubek in Hungary, looking for my family, my wife. I went to our old apartment and knocked on the door. Only strangers were inside. I didn't know where to go, what to do. I was desolate. Walked the streets. I encountered an old neighbor. How are you? Fine. What's happened to my wife? Eyes went down. We're sorry. We thought perhaps you might have known, but just before the end of the war, the Nazis had come and taken many women and children and others to Auschwitz, a death camp, and were sure that she was killed. But Marcel Sternberger, as he talked to this man, was intrigued and asked the man some more questions. And the man, the man said, I am here because I just believe. I hope against hope. Because the Americans liberated Auschwitz near the end of the war, and I'm just hoping that perhaps she was liberated at that moment and believing me dead, emigrated to the United States. So I'm here in New York City looking for my wife. Marcel Sternberger said to himself, I've heard this story before. He asked the man to describe his wife a little bit and then his name and her name. His name was Bella. Bella Paskin. His wife's name was Maria. Maria Paskin. Surreptitiously, Sternberger looked into his coat pocket, pulled out his wallet and found an old dog-eared piece of paper that had been there for some time and on that piece of paper was written the name Maria Paskin and a phone number. He had met Maria Paskin at a, at a party sometime before and they'd struck up a conversation because they were both able to speak Hungarian and they talked, but it had been so long. He turned to Bella Paskin and he said, would you be willing to get off with me at the next stop? And they did. Went quickly to a telephone booth, he dialed the number, held it to his ear and it rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. He almost hung up and then a tired female voice grabbed the receiver and said, Hello. Sternberger said, Is this Maria Paskin? Yes. Do you remember me? I'm Marcel Sternberger. No. We met at a party some time ago and we tried... Oh, yes. Please, please tell me about your husband, the story about you and your home. Where was it again? Dubek, Hungary. And your husband's name was Bella. He said, just a minute, I think you're about to witness a miracle. And he handed the receiver to Bella Paskin, who picked it up and said, hello, and burst into tears. He says, Maria, Maria, Maria. Now, you can only imagine what that moment must have been like. Surely the reunion in actuality was too precious a moment to be intruded upon. So Sternberger hailed a cab, gave the appropriate address to the cabbie, and paid him. Sometime later, of course, he found this wonderful couple reunited. Now, skeptics, non-believers, would want to say to us, Ha! Huh, chance! Coincidence! What luck! I ask you this. Was it chance that Sternberger on that day thought about that friend in Brooklyn? Was it chance that Marcel Sternberger got on a subway he'd never been on before and found the only empty seat that was happened to be next to Bella Paskin? 
Was it chance that Bela Paskin was reading the newspaper in Hungarian? Was it chance that Marcel Sternberger struck up a conversation with Bela Paskin? Was it chance that Marcel Sternberger had met Bela Paskin's wife months before? Was it chance that he had maintained that piece of paper in his wallet all those months? Was it chance? Or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon in New York City? You see, the insurance companies have it wrong. You ever looked at the back of the policy? All of these provisions are in force except under the acts of God. And what are they? Earthquake, firestorm, hurricane, lightning strike. They got it wrong. Those aren't the acts of God. Why, the acts of God is the creator of the universe weaving in and through the lives of millions and millions and billions of human beings and all of the circumstances of life to bring about just the appropriate moment in time that he wants to occur. The master weaver of all of the threads of all of the humans of all the lives woven together. The subtle weaving events of this great God who has laid claim to our lives. I remember when he laid claim to me. I was in Chicago on a business trip. 1975. I have to give you a little background. In February of 75, I was suffering from three major calamities in my life. The girl that I had hoped to marry had suddenly run off and married somebody else. And I was absolutely devastated. I know you find that hard to believe, that anyone would want to marry someone other than me, right? I had uh, invested heavily in a variety of businesses. They'd all failed, and I owed a substantial amount of money. Probably easily could have declared bankruptcy, but did not, because I owed the money primarily to a bank whose major loan officer was my college roommate. I kind of felt a moral obligation to keep him in business. And then my older brother had committed suicide when he was a student at Harvard Law School in 1968. My parents had filed a wrongful death suit against a psychiatrist in a hospital in which he committed suicide. And that trial was coming up, and I was supposed to testify, and now I get to see all the depositions and all of the truth and all of the horror and the grief that you would experience in 68 came rushing back, and I was absolutely overwhelmed and devastated. It was time for me to get to God. So I went out looking down the streets of downtown Chicago. I was there looking for a church building. I knew I probably could pray in the hotel room, but you know, you want to be sincere at a moment like this, and so I felt a little extra effort on my part, like going to his building would help. I walked by an out-of-town newspaper stand and asked the man if he would sell me a newspaper from Topeka, Kansas. A perverse motive had struck me. He didn't have one from Topeka, he had one from Kansas City. Did I want that? I said, sure. So he handed it to me, folded up. I stuck it in my overcoat pocket and continued on. Now, I have to tell you, the reason I bought the newspaper was this. Look, the girl I was going to marry had married a sportscaster in Topeka, Kansas. And like in Los Angeles, where I was from, sometimes guys on the radio also write in the local newspaper. I was going to find his local sports column and critique his writing style. <laughs> Dangling participle. Can you imagine? How could this guy get a job as a writer? You know what that is, don't you? That's firing all your ambition into the sky as your ship, your ship sinks into the ocean. That's what I was doing. I was absolutely desolate. So I'm on my way to this church building. I found one inside an office building. I don't know why there's a sign outside or something. I walked inside, 
Red carpet is all I remember. I don't do anything halfway, so I went right up onto the platform and kneeled down, and for the first time in my life, I really prayed. I'd had friends who told me about Christ. I, I knew all the answers. I'd even been involved in young life when I was in high school, but I had never really committed my life. Never really laid it before him. And I did at that moment, and I said, God, I'm, I'm so broken. I'm so hurt that if you want this life, you can have it, but you're going to have to heal me. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. And I was crying, and I was sweating, and I was overwhelmed. Basically, the theme was, God, if you want me, you can have me. Otherwise, I'm going to deep-six it in Lake Michigan, but you're going to have to do the healing. I have no energy or will to go on. And about a half an hour later, I regained my feet and went off to have breakfast at a local coffee shop in the hotel that I was staying at and ordered my breakfast. And then I remembered the newspaper, so I opened that up and flapped it open on the front the front page on the table in front of me and looked down and what caught my eye was a box right in the middle of the front page and it said over the top the Bible quote for the day 2nd Kings 20th chapter 5th verse I've heard your prayers I've seen your tears behold I will heal you don't tell me there isn't a personal God don't tell me there isn't a God who can overrule who can weave together even the choice of a verse to end up in a newspaper and to end up in Chicago into the hands of some fool like myself. Don't tell me there isn't a God who rules all kinds of things. You know, it's absolutely astounding to me. There are some verses that, 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 that sweep across my life on a regular basis that I'm constantly coming face to face with as a pastor in the church. The one that really grips me is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Don't have to look it up. I want to tell you what's there. It talks about this early church, what was going on there. And there was a sense of vibrancy and life and excitement as these people who've been commit, who were committed to God and who had had God laid their hand on them uh, in such a miraculous way. In verse 43, it says, everyone was feeling a sense of awe. And I shouldn't wonder. Do you remember what it was like when you became a believer in Jesus Christ and the sudden realization that God was here, real, personal, would talk to you and forgive your sins? An astounding sense of awe. The wonder that God has laid his hand on me. Why would he bother? I mean, I know me. goes on later on to say that these people who were the community of the awestruck, if you will, had uh, a great sense of appeal to the local surrounding community. They were having favor with God and with all of the people. Why? Because God was at work demonstrating himself through the lives of those who were committed to him. I was in Bryansk, uh, Russia, in uh, this last summer. Misha was my translator. We talked to the people who were in this city of Bryansk and this Baptist church that was there. Uh, an amazing story, an amazing country. If you've not been to Russia, it's an astounding place. Atheism took the soul right out of that country. There seems to be no hope, but despair is, is rampant. Uh, the only thing that I saw that gave an, a sense of aesthetic, a sense of beauty, were the church buildings that are going up everywhere now because freedom has permitted it. And suddenly a recapturing of some sense of aesthetic, the pointing of the bricks, the trimming of the downspouts, everything is gray and brown except the insides of the church are awash with color. Why? Christians are the only people that smile. They're the ones that sing the loudest, the ones that have the most to live for, the ones that are most compassionate, enjoy life. It's really astounding. It's night and day right in front of your eyes. But I want to tell you the story of this church. This church had been around for some time, but obviously oppressed under the communist regime for a great many years. 
mid-70s or so, turns out that they felt there was a window of opportunity, so they began applying to the local Communist Party for permission to build a church building. No. They applied again. No. Again. No. Again. No. And then suddenly, yes. Yes, you could build your church building on that site. So they quickly got permission, purchased the site, threw all the materials they could on the site and began building a church building on the most prominent site in all of Briand. It's on a hill at the confluence of three highways with a bus stop at the base of the hill. Why they gave them that piece of ground, nobody knows. It was just lucky, I guess. There was a, pro- there was a little house on this, on this piece of property, and so they built the shell of the church around the house. Inside the house, they maintained their headquarters, their place of, of, uh, of uh, construction. They had their teams that would be there. They would be fed there. Some of their security personnel would stay there overnight to kind of secure the site. And the shell went up rather rapidly. Well, it just so happens that right next door to this site in Bryansk is an obelisk. It's a monument to Bulgarian pilots who apparently had brought food in during World War II and broken the siege that Germany had placed upon this region. And so they were setting up this obelisk right next door, and the Communist Party was about ready to dedicate the monument. So one day, a contingent of the Communist Party, along with the local militia, came to the site where 60 men were building this building to honor God. And they said, you must stop and tear it down. No. They refused. We have the right. We have the document. You, you signed this as ours. The 60 men retreated into that center building, and there they were for three days, day and night, praying and fasting, that the God of heaven would intervene. After three days, of course, the story gets out pretty fast, and over 2,000 people circled the site in defiance. That just brought a climactic moment when the communists returned with militia, military, trucks, dogs, water cannons. They dispersed the crowd with the water cannons. They sent the dogs into the inner building, arrested, beat, handcuffed, dragged out by the hair. All 60 people threw them in jail, some of them as long as three weeks. After dark, the bulldozers came. In a couple of sweeps, the whole site was flat. The next day, or a few days later, large military trucks rolled into the site, threw cables around the foundations and yanked them out as you would a bad tooth. People of Bryansk, the, uh, the church, spent much of their time on their knees praying, God, please forgive them. And God, cause our hearts to forgive them. Well, I think God must have had other plans in mind. The night before the dedication of that obelisk, the chief of the Communist Party, whose name was Kirchmilio, died. His successor, whose name was Popov, died within three months. His successor, a man named Sizyemko, was recalled to Moscow, never to be heard from again. The man who supplied the trucks that pulled out the foundations died. The most abusive police officer of the local militia who had taken the Christians and cursed their God and thrown them into jail and beaten them unmercifully left a couple of weeks later from his job riding his motorcycle home, fell into an open, uncovered construction site, and died. 
And the word got out very fast. You fight against God, you die. Very interesting, because the communists then spread the word as fast as they could through the public schools. Listen, make sure, teachers, you tell all of your students these deaths are not the judgment of God. And in their denial, they affirm it to be so. Unbelievable. But here's what happened. The non-Christians who were watching made an acrostic. Communist Party, Soviet Union, CPSU. In Russian letters, K-Pi, you know the mathematical formula symbol, Pi, two lines with a squiggle, K-Pi-C-C. And an acrostic was made. And the people of Bryansk began quoting it to one another. Ha! Huh? Communist Party, Soviet Union? Kirchmilio, Papa, Sizyemko, Uche. Who's next? Who else will fight against the living God? Now today, that building is going back up on the same site. And the people of Bryansk, as they pass by this magnificent structure as it's going up, realize Communism is dead, but God is alive. Amen? Sure. The Christians have added beauty and hope to that culture. The people know where to find God in that culture. They understand the God of the universe. They know what that site actually means, and it's also why they don't steal bricks from the construction site. God is in charge. These people who have been laid hold of by God are the ones professing Him in that culture, at that place. And now the people know where to find God. And He's beginning to move in that culture, convicting of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And He's winning many people to Christ. God has called out in Russia a people to follow after Him. And I want to talk a little tonight about people who will follow after this God who weaves the whole universe together after the counsel of His own will. And make it a little bit personal. So I'd like to have you go to, with me to a place in the scriptures that I'm fond of. That's uh, John chapter 21. John 21. This is the account, uh, if you know John 21, the account certainly where Jesus has restored Peter. Peter, who has denied Jesus three times and then been restored in a Wonderful, charming moment three times. And now Jesus comes to Peter with his final command. Please notice verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Saying to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one whom had leaned against his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That one. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, And Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
This saying therefore went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say of him that he would not die only if I want him to remain. What is that to you? And this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things and we know that his witness is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books which would be written. Jesus gives this final command to his personal disciple, Peter. Follow me. Simple, isn't it? Simple command, not too hard to understand, very uncomplicated. Psalm 37 says a similar kind of thing. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust him. He'll do it. What's the wonderful verse you learn as a Christian? You learn the magic, the, the, the major three. Magic's a bad word, I'm sorry. Major three, right? John 3.16. And then where? First John 1, 9, because you've got to get right with the Lord on a regular basis. And then, of course, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Which is what? So you know it. You've learned these. Here we go. What is it? Trust in the Lord with and on your in do what and. Can I give you the bottom line? Follow me. Follow me. Now, let me just ask three questions for us as we look at this passage. What did Jesus mean when he said to Peter, follow me? What did he mean? Surely Peter must have known. It wasn't in a dark place. It had a context. Peter certainly knew. Second question is, how did Peter do? Let's give him a grade. What kind of grade are you going to give the apostle Peter on following Jesus? from this text. And then lastly, why, why would you want to follow Jesus anyway? Why would you want to? All right, what did he mean? This account, as I mentioned before, comes right at this marvelous moment where Peter, who had denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times, has just been restored three times. A fabulous moment, a sweet moment of restoration. Here is a man who has betrayed Christ, not unlike Judas, but instead has come in repentance has come in brokenness, has come in genuineness and been restored by Christ in love, as he does everybody who comes to him genuinely. What did he mean? Well, it's intriguing that Jesus has already told Peter what it means to follow him. So what he's really doing is reiterating a command that he made earlier in his life. Let me have you go there with me. That's found in Mark, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has gone with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. For a long period of time, Jesus has been trying to explain to his disciples just who it is that he is, and they don't fully get it. Finally, Jesus gives them the final exam and says, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, because he's been given some help from God, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus basically says, right, you're going to get an A-plus on that. Pick it up at that point. Now watch what happens. The next verse, verse 31. And he began, that's Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. You see what Jesus says? Here's what it means to follow him. Three parts. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Now what does he mean by that? Particularly when he talks about denying yourself. It's not an uncommon thing for Jesus to talk like that. Deny yourself. Set your own self-interests over here. Make a decision to do something else. Set aside your independence. Begin to rely upon someone else, particularly me. Begin to give yourself over to what I want for you. Theologically, we could say, don't ever believe that you can make yourself acceptable to God on your own account. Renounce the sin that contaminates you and receive the grace that comes to you by God. God is the one who's given you that grace. It's a turning from and a turning to. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They turned from idols to serve a living and true God. I was in, uh, I was in Paris, France with John Glass. You know John? You know John? John's a minister, a minister in a church and with a, a team in Paris, France. And he was telling me as I visited him once in his church... Uh, of a little Vietnamese lady pointed to her and said, see that lady there? She became a Christian about six months ago at a Billy Graham crusade. Then he told me this story about her. He said she became a believer and that night went home on the train to her little apartment, walked in, over to the mantle, took her Buddha from the top of the mantle, walked back out into the night, walked to the river Seine and threw it in. She was denying all that which had come before and now turning in a new way to serve a living and true God. Denying self-reliance, setting aside, trusting Christ instead. Basically, he's saying, stop depending on yourself. Don't depend on you, depend on Him. In fact, Christ warns, you saw perhaps in some of the later verses in that section in chapter 8, He warns against self-protective behavior, self-dependent behavior. Whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. Whoever seeks to protect himself, whoever seeks not to deny himself will find great jeopardy, great destruction. But whoever denies himself, trusts another, me, 